Well, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, on this show, just about anything can happen. And tonight, it probably will, because we're going to tackle something which I never thought in my life would become in any way, shape, or form. Remember, I grew up during the Eisenhower years. Uh, Controversial. The American presidency, in particular, that span stretching from the first president, the first American president, George Washington, who it turns out almost didn't make the cut. And we'll explain what we mean uh, by that as we move through the morning or evening. Um, And, of course, Donald J. Trump the last full administration. We don't include Biden because, you know, it's only, what, one and a half years into his first term, so the jury is still out. Although I must say, for someone who is just a year and a half into that uh, administration, the president has uh, achieved some extraordinary things. I mean, a whole series of extraordinary things. In fact, so much more extraordinary than his immediate predecessors that you kind of have to go back to the 1960s and the Johnson administration to see a president so successful, particularly in terms of the measurement of success in any presidential administration, which is his legislation that he can get through the Congress, that actually that's probably going to come up uh, at some point during the evening as we go through a recitation of uh, how do we judge presidents? Where, where, where do we judge them? Um, do we judge them right away? Do we wait for history and historians? Well, we just so happen to have a very able-bodied citizen historians with us tonight. Anyway, I will get to the introductions when we get to the show, but I do want to kind of catch everybody up on the uh, top of the news. For those of you who are new to the other side of midnight, And a lot of you are, because when I do these interviews, like with Nuri or with Clive or others, um, people come over and kind of take a look, or in this case, take a listen. So for all of you who are kind of just brand new, uh, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our main homepage. Click on tonight's banner which says there very close to the top, you scroll down uh, a few uh, uh, turns of your uh, thumb wheel on your mouse, the American presidency, a deep, deep dive with Jones, Honiger, and Lambert. And right under that, it says to listen to the show with a, uh, there needs to be a capital large font T there. And then under that, it says guest page and fast links to items. Click on my name. That will take you to the section of Radio with Pictures on the guest page where I have my news items arrayed. So we're going to start tonight as we have done for many, many uh, weeks now, ever since uh, the announcement of the first unmanned test of the human-occupied spacecraft, the Orion uh, command module, the crew module for the uh, Artemis mission to and from the moon, which will commence shortly. The first mission is going to be, unlike during, uh, well, actually during Apollo, it was unmanned or unpersoned. The first 
Artemis mission, which launches at the end of the month, still scheduled for the 29th, which is a Monday, following our Sunday night show. And I'm planning, I finally decided, you know, I was kind of kicking around whether I was going to do what I'm going to do that final Sunday before the mission. And whether I do it like a week earlier, and then we would kind of talk about it on that Sunday. No, I'm going to do it on that Sunday for two reasons. One is it's more suspense. I mean, come on, we love suspense here. And number two, I need the time to get ready. This is complicated, as you will see when you get to see what I'm putting together. And frankly, we need more time. So on the 28th of August, which is two weeks from tomorrow night, I think, if I can call up my calendar here, we're going to do a three-hour full discourse on what is waiting for the unmanned Artemis mission, which is going to be a kind of a a tryout, an early out-of-town rehearsal for the second Artemis mission, which will only take place in the following year, in uh, 2023, up and around the moon for many orbits and then back to Earth. That one will have four crew persons. Uh, This one is unmanned, unpersoned. But there is a mannequin or two on board, and they're doing all kinds of measurements. And for our purposes, um, the most interesting and crucial thing is it will carry literally dozens of incredibly high-resolution HD live television cameras, and they should be giving us a constant stream of video. Uh, Not quite constant. Uh, We'll explain more about that when we get closer But it's on this Artemis mission that I'm almost willing to bet that there will be some amazing video in stunning detail of what we have not seen since Apollo, when the astronauts took film, remember film, old-fashioned color film images of these astonishing, stunning, artificial extraterrestrial structures on the moon. Now, if you joined the party lately, what I just said probably made you fall off your chair. What? Hogan says there's structures on the moon? Yes. And they're huge. And they're fantastic. And even though they're incredibly, incredibly old, enough left to them, that if they get the right angle and the right sunlight and the right timing, the images, the incredible HD digital images that will be downlinked at all hours of the day and night from the Artemis command module in this long looping orbit, this retrograde orbit of the moon, uh, should blow our socks off. And we will enter a whole new era. Now, it's obviously not going to be quite that simple because there's going to be delays. The question is, how much delay between NASA taking these images and then releasing the images to the American people and the world. That's what we don't know at the moment. And they built in a kind of a standby excuse, which I will detail in the coming couple of weeks, and then go into great detail on the evening of the 28th. So with that as prelude, um, go to item number two, which is right under the Artemis update there in item number one 
Um, the uh, unmanned spacecraft complement, which are rushing out toward the moon even as we speak tonight, but we'll get there well after because they're kind of on their slow boat to China. Remember, a few weeks ago, the unmanned capstone mission, which is a spacecraft about the size of a microwave, weighs about 50 pounds, uh, is loaded with all kinds of interesting radio gear and high-precision timekeeping. It's got an atomic clock on board, and it will also be taking HD images. Um, that will arrive in lunar orbit about a month after Artemis has come and gone because it's on what I call the uh, slow boat to China mission. What do I mean by that? Well, if you remember back, some of you, and if you don't remember, you can Google. Google is your friend. Even if they eavesdrop on you, they're still your friend because they provide you with a, almost anything you could imagine. And they only want you know a piece of your soul in return. So um, you can decide if that's worth it. Anyway, um, during the Apollo missions, it took the astronauts only three days after they left Earth orbit to arrive at the moon, in lunar orbit. These missions, and there are two of them, one was launched about a month ago, I think, give or take, and that is the capstone mission. The other one, which is the first unmanned spacecraft uh, launched by the South Koreans called Denuri. Um, capstone is an acronym. Actually, it's an abbreviated acronym which really connects the mission to the Great Pyramid in Egypt, but that's a whole other discussion which we will save for two weeks from tomorrow night. The Nanuri mission is a kind of a synthesis of two Korean words, which means one which means enjoy and the other which means moon. So Nanuri means enjoy moon. I mean, uh, you know, foreign nationals, when they send these spacecraft, um, they really are imaginative in delving into their own deep mythologies and histories and coming up with some really superb names. Um, of course, NASA's no slouch either. Apollo and Artemis are right on, mythologically speaking, as you will see and hear in a couple of weeks. So in that tradition, the Denuri mission, which was launched a few days ago, um, it's not going to arrive until about a month after the capstone mission, which will not arrive in orbit around the moon until November 13th. Well, the Denuri mission, the South Korean 1,500-pound uh, unperson spacecraft, robotic spacecraft, carrying all kinds of really neat instruments, including a 33-pound, yes, you heard that ritually correct, a 33-pound camera, put on the spacecraft by NASA called the Shadow Cam. Oh, I keep forgetting to have the, the uh, playback of, of the uh, Shadow radio program to, to play when I do that, because most of you kids out there, you don't know what the Shadow knows, and I'm not going to try to imitate him tonight. But I guarantee for the next show, I will have that queued up and ready, because it's kind of historically interesting in light of what the Shadow Cam uh, on the Denuri mission, put on board this other national spacecraft to the moon, unmanned spacecraft, which will arrive December 17th, uh, a few days past a month after the uh, capstone mission. It also carries cameras, and one in particular, the shadow cam, 
is specifically designed, according to the NASA press releases, to look into the shadows, the permanently dark areas at the moon's south pole, which is where, of course, the first human landing in the Artemis mission in 2023 is supposed to set down. We're not going anywhere near the equator like Apollo did, but they're going for the pole, for the south pole, because uh, that's how the orbit works out. If you want to, you've got to pick one or the other. You can't choose both. So they're picking the South Pole, which is where the very, very unmanned LaCrosse mission of NASA uh, crashed into the moon deliberately back in 2009 to basically scuff up a dust cloud so it could be measured from Earth and from orbit, from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, to see if, in fact, there was water on the moon. And there was a resounding success with the unmanned mission, the Centaur rocket, which kicked up the cloud of dust and a hearty high silver, um, literally was miles high. And the crater itself, caused by the equivalent of a, uh, I think it was about 10 tons of TNT of kinetic energy when that unmanned upper stage slammed into the moon, caused the crater, caused the cloud of ejecta, which was then surveyed by spectrometry both from the follow-on LaCrosse spacecraft itself and, of course, from the Earth, from the observatories that were looking at the moon at that specific time, at that specific night, uh, to see what was kicked up. Turned out there was a lot of interesting stuff in that cloud, which, of course, is why the unmanned Artemis mission, by the way, Artemis was the sister of Apollo, just so you kind of get that right, um, the man version, the human version of the Artemis mission in 2023, which will carry the first woman astronaut to the moon and the first person of color, according to the NASA mantra, is also going to be landing near the South Pole, possibly in one of those permanently shadowed craters that the Shadow Cam NASA mission uh, this December is going to begin surveying, looking for ice and water and other volatiles. At least that's what NASA tells us. And as I will go into some detail in a couple of weeks, that mission, which has been highly touted by the space agency, as it is described, cannot work. Let me repeat that. The Shadow Cam mission on Denuri when it gets to the moon in December, mid-December, is going to ostensibly take incredibly high uh, sensitivity and high-resolution images of the ice in those permanently shadowed craters lit by the sunlight bouncing off the crater walls because the craters at the South Pole and the tilt of the moon to its orbit is such that those craters never, ever in the bottoms see sunlight. So they're very, 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 very cold. The idea is they become cold traps. And over billions of years, this is the NASA model, any stray molecules of water or other volatiles that were kind of bouncing around the moon, uh, lit, you know, heated by the day temperatures on the sun side of the moon, which is like 250 above zero, well above the boiling point of water, even at uh, sea level pressures, let alone in a vacuum. 
any molecules of volatiles liberated by the high temperatures of the lunar day uh, literally bounce their way to one of the two poles. And when they get into these deeply shattered craters, it's so cold. In fact, it's so cold at the bottom of these craters. This sounds like a bit of Johnny Carson. How cold is it? It's so cold that it's literally colder at the bottom of these sun-less craters than on the sun side of Pluto when Pluto turns slowly around every six days and aims one of its uh, hemispheres toward the sun about four. So literally in our own Earth-Moon system, we have the coldest regions, even colder than the dark side of Mercury before it turns around uh, and faces the sun. So we literally have the honor of having the coldest place in the solar system right next door. And it has become, we now know from the Lacrosse mission and uh, also the follow-up detections by the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and its uh, spectrometers, we know that it is home to all kinds of incredible, incredibly frozen, just above absolute zero volatiles, including water in the form of ice, uh, that astronauts can live upon on the moon and cosmonauts and taikonauts and any other nation's uh, uh, astronauts who wish to go there. And why would they go there? Well, it is NASA's intention over the next several years, uh, beginning, I believe, with the third mission um, where they're going to actually land. The second mission will only go into orbit like Apollo 8. The third Artemis mission will land at the South Pole and by then they will be taking with them or have pre-positioned by means of NASA unpeopled rockets um, all kinds of supplies, including fuel, energy, communications, habitats, whatever, because the Artemis 3 mission is going to begin the process of setting up in the 21st century the first international moon base on the moon at the South Pole. Things are about to get really, 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 really interesting because it's all dependent on those two unpeopled missions, Capstone and Denuri. And both of them, if they do not work, the whole Artemis program of landing at the moon's South Pole and setting up the beginnings of moon base Alpha cannot proceed. In other words, NASA, without those unmanned missions and their data, will be dead in the water, even the water on the moon. So many more details and all the interstitial glue and why those missions, as at least the one of them, at least the Nuri and the shadow cam on board is conceived, can not work as advertised, nor is it intended to. In fact, we will unveil, um, as I hinted at last week, the real mission of the Malin shadow cam. Because, yes, the scientist in charge of the shadow cam going to the moon on the Denuri mission is none other than Michael Malin, the chief cover-up officer of NASA in keeping any knowledge of extraterrestrial ruins, either on the moon or on Mars or anywhere else in the solar system, totally, totally secret. 
So his hidden agenda will be unveiled in great detail here on the other side of midnight in two short weeks. Moving on. Item number three. Um, In case you haven't noticed, there has been an interesting escalation in the soap opera surrounding the Donald Trump presidency. Things have gone from bad to worse to you've got to be kidding. And there's no end in sight. Um, I don't think this is the end of the story. I think this is kind of merely the beginning. And what we mean by that and the context of our entire program tonight, where we're going to take a very intensive, deep look at this extraordinary and unique American institution, the American presidency from Washington to Trump will be unveiled in the next uh, two and a half plus hours. But as prelude, look at item number four, because our first president, as we now know from exquisite and overwhelming documentation, in fact, you might want to look at four and five together, uh, unquestionably was a Freemason uh, when he became the first president of the United States uh, 200 and what is it, 46 years ago, I think now, and counting. And if you doubt that, uh, look at num- item number five. This is a statue, a bust, sitting on a gorgeous polished uh, granite block in the garden of the um, uh, Scottish Rite Temple of Freemasonry, which is located just up the street by design, as you're going to find out, from the White House. And what I always found interesting when I found this, uh, this statue there in the garden was the um, very elegant monument, which is a uh, granite block inscribed below with a bust of Washington uh, sitting on top. Notice what it says. It says, George Washington, Freemason and first president. Notice the order. That is going to become extremely relevant and important as we go through the evening. Which, of course, leads us to item number six. Because it was about 100 years after the creation of this experiment, the United States of America, the American experiment, where the country kind of finally, after a lot of fits and starts and architectural plans and models and lack of funding and interrupted funding and finally funding that was allowed the monument to be completed. It was in 1885 that the Washington Monument was dedicated literally in downtown Washington, D.C., between the the White House, the Capitol, and the, uh, well, of course, at that time, the Lincoln Memorial did not exist. So it's kind of at the the, uh, bend of a right triangle going down from the White House, making a sharp left-hand turn and over to the Capitol. And that's where they put the Washington Monument, which is a 555-foot-tall Egyptian obelisk, which is so out of place amid the Greco-Roman architecture of the rest of Washington that I am sure that when tourists come to town, the most interested and the most curious kind of look up and say, who ordered that? And yet that has been dominating the Washington, D.C. landscape 
for well over a hundred years. But there is a backstory, as we will be getting into in the rest of the evening. Finally, item number seven. Um, I'll tell you what, let me kind of leave number seven for when we get into the conversation, because you're going to see how number seven, which looks on the surface like it has nothing to do with anything that we've discussed or will be planning to discuss tonight, in fact, is centrally, critically involved. And as you can see by the little decal there on the base of that very interesting tetrahedral display case, it is connected to item number one. It is connected to NASA and the return human missions to the moon in the Artemis program and exactly how will be unveiled as we move through our conversation this morning. So without further ado, let me introduce uh, my panelists tonight. Um, We've got uh, Marvin D. Jones back with us, who is our citizen historian who lives in, uh, uh, in or near Boston. I don't kind of remember where, but since I lived in Springfield and worked there, I know that it's at the other end of the world's most expensive uh, Main Street, namely the Mass Turnpike. Uh, we also have Barbara Honiger with us, who is the only person on our panel tonight who has actually lived and worked in that building in Washington. And no, I don't mean the monument. I mean the White House. She was actually a senior advisor to the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, and uh, actually for a time to his predecessor, Jimmy Carter, President Carter. So she's worked for two presidents, and we're going to get into how that kind of came to be. Our third uh, participant this morning is my friend and colleague and our resident metaphysician who worked for Manly P. Hall for many, many years, um, Georgia Lambert. And why is Georgia with us? Because our conversation tonight is going to deeply involve um, not just the physics of going to and from the moon and not just the political science of the presidency and the creation and the conversations and arguments of the founding fathers, including uh, items from the Federalist Papers and discussions among all the founders as to what kind of chief executive for a new government breaking away from the English monarchy should we have but it's also going to be a view from 30,000 feet that I hope will kind of complement mine, which is there's nothing accidental about the American presidency in terrestrial history and certainly nothing accidental or coincidental about its crisis right now as we move into the earliest parts of the 21st century and much more important the relevant parts of the 26,000-year processional cycle, which is driving the hyperdimensional physics, which in our model is modulating all of this. And so on that note, uh, since we only have like about uh, 30 seconds, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to defer introducing my guest of the morning until we are um, safely ensconced in the in the beginning of the next segment. And so without further ado, I think what I'm going to do is to play for you a little tune, which is so apropos of the evening, 
because in fact it is emblematic of uh, what we're going to be talking about, which is the presidency of the United States of America. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, August 13th, 2022. Tonight, we talk about the American presidency. And since the chief executive of this republic, a republic dedicated to the idea of the common man and, of course, woman, is so redolent in the structure of the United States government itself, I kind of felt that Copeland and his fanfare to the common man in various iterations, would be kind of appropriate. So this is 
Aaron Copeland, fanfare to the people to whom the United States was in fact created, the common person. Welcome back, everyone. My guest this morning, we're going to start with Barbara Honiger. Barbara served uh, two presidents, and uh, thereby hangs a very interesting tale. Uh, gosh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall back when you were walking in those doors for the first time. Barbara, take us back to what it felt like and how you got the job. <laughs> Can you hear me okay, Richard? Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, well, I want to begin um, by just saying that whereas I appreciate every time we do one of these shows about when I was in the Reagan White House, that you always want to um, promote me to a higher rank than I actually had there. <laughs> well, you were one um, of the only women I know. <laughs> well, in, um, a, in, I, a, in a policy position. Right. I was a policy analyst. I would not call myself a senior advisor uh, to, Re- to President Reagan. That was the position of my boss and mentor, Dr. Martin Anderson, who was the chief domestic policy advisor. I was both one of his three top assistants, and I was also uh, separately and independently a policy analyst in the domestic policy side. So, And I was in the West Wing of the White House, and our offices were effectively over the Oval Office. So, yes, I was there. Um, so you want to know what it was like the very day I walked into that building? Yep. First? Yep. <laughs> well, there in lies this story. Um, I did not work for President Carter. I was in the Carter White House before he left office, which is quite phenomenal because I had been working for Dr. Anderson at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where I was a you know, perpetual student, undergrad, graduate, graduate at large. I think I was a student there for 12 years. I never wanted to leave. Um, but I finally did leave uh, because I started working for Dr. Anderson to get the money to put myself through graduate school at Stanford. And uh, one day he came into the office and he said, well, you have you have a choice. Uh, in about two weeks, you can either be out of a job and on the street, or Reagan has invited me for the third time to be his chief domestic policy advisor in his 1980 campaign for the Republican nomination. And if he wins, which he will this time, we're certain of that, um, you, can, uh, you would go with me to the top floor of the uh, Reagan campaign headquarters. And if we win, which we hope to, then you would be in the transition team on the top floor of that. And then from inauguration day on, you would be with me in the White House. Um, so it's your choice. Do you want to be out of work or do you want to go to the White House? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a terrible choice. Seriously. Were, were, were uh, you, hang on, hang on. Were you, a, yeah. were you a formal Republican? 
No, never have been. Uh, I was completely apolitical. I don't think I even read a newspaper back then. I was a a egghead uh, graduate student at the time in the neurophysiology and neuropsychology of human and non-human primate communication. And uh, but I had to have a job to put myself through my graduate program. So I basically worked almost full time, and then I took courses part time uh, for my graduate work at Stanford. And um, so, no, uh, I was completely apolitical, but I'll tell you, I was politicized really, really fast. And we can get into that story if you like, but that wasn't until I got to the Republican convention in Detroit. So you um, started out as an innocent nerd. No, I was like, literally, like, I was like Dorothy and Oz when I got to. Oh, my to, God. Oh, my God. I, can so I was see like it. Dorothy and Oz. I even have a little black dog here by my side, you know? Oh. I mean, yeah, no, seriously. Well, we're certainly uh, not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> I'm not sure we're in America anymore, Richard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, we have to get back to America, not just uh, Kansas, although there was a magnificent vote uh, in Kansas. Um, Wasn't you know, it? Abortion re- uh, resolution a few weeks ago. Um, so maybe the Kansas are going to get us finally back to the real America. But anyway, to answer your question, what was it like when I first went in there? Well, to answer that question, you need to understand that I was very high level in the campaign and the transition. So um, my boss, Martin Anderson, uh, was going to be the, he already knew, Reagan had tapped him to continue in the role and be the chief domestic policy advisor to President Reagan, which is the equivalent of the National Security Advisor, you know, uh, on the, uh, the the defense and foreign policy side. So Marty had to set up the entire Domestic Policy Council uh, and our shop in the West Wing of the White House. And you don't want to do that, you know, at 12.01 p.m. on January 20th, <laughs> Inauguration Day. You need to have already done a lot of infrastructure work inside the White House to set that up. So I was one of, I don't know, I'm guessing five to seven individuals from our domestic policy side in the transition team in Washington, D.C., who was selected to actually uh, be the Reagan, the new Reagan administration team that went into the Carter White House and worked there during the day for about three to four days, five at the most, while Carter was still president. And that is an incredibly important period of time. Oh, my right? God, yeah. The whole Iran thing was blowing that, up or dragging on. or was hostage crisis. And it was because of what I learned there in the campaign, the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign, uh, headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, in the transition and in the White House, that led me to do the research for my book, October Surprise, on the treasonous deal that George H.W. Bush, when he was Reagan's vice presidential running mate in the 1980 campaign, uh, cut with the Khomeini regime to delay the release of our hostages in exchange for about $5 billion worth of illegal under-the-table arms to Iran once they gained the White House, which in fact happened. This is all, uh, this is all detailed uh, and uh, now has been verified by formerly classified documents in my book, October Surprise, which was published on May 12th of 1989. So, so I went into the... Uh, Boy, talk about a baptism of fire. Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm serious. And uh, the, other, the other baptism of fire, as I said, I was literally like, 
I had worked for Martin Anderson, who was probably the most, had the, the, the rawest, most phenomenal intelligence of anyone I've ever been in the physical presence of. And he was my boss, and he thought I was brilliant. He said so. Um, he said so on national television. Um, so we had a kind of mutual uh, admiration society, and I had worked for him for a total of about six years, beginning at the Hoover Institution. Then I went to my graduate program in parapsychology, left after about two years working for him. Uh, we published books. Uh, I co-authored books with him at the Hoover Institution on military subjects especially the military draft. Then I went off to my uh, first ever accredited, fully accredited graduate program in the world in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology for about a year and a half, and then was hired back by him about nine months before we went to the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign um, and the, uh, you know, the uh, Republican convention in Detroit in 1980, where I literally ran the platform speech writing office and had significant input into Reagan's speeches. Talk about a baptism of fire and an instant politicization. I was literally politically naive. I just knew that I liked working for Martin Anderson. He tapped me to go with it, so it was coattails thing. But once I got to the 1980 uh, convention in Detroit, we were three floors down from the top of the Renaissance Tower, which is a very high tower. And Reagan's uh, suite was, Nancy and Reagan's suite was on the top. Uh, the one below that, I can't remember who that was. But we were the third one down. Uh, and that was our speech writing and platform development office. So one day, uh, my, my boss, Martin Anderson, was uh, in charge of writing the platform, drafting the platform for the Republican Party, which, by the way, started the whole right wing uh, swing of the United States in politics um, from that very moment uh, in this room on the second floor down just below Reagan's suite, Reagan and Nancy's suite. So I was the only woman in the room and it was a round table. There were probably 10 of us. I was the only female and it was at that table where all of these men decided for the first time in American history up to that point both political parties had supported the Equal Rights Amendment. It was at that moment that they decided to put in the platform in order to try to get the uh, votes of the evangelical Christians and the right-wing the right wing evangelical Christians. Uh, they decided to, for the first time, have the Republican Party come out against the Equal Rights Amendment. Oh. At, at that moment, the only woman in the room, I felt like Someone had taken a knife and put it in my stomach. And I was instantly politicized, and there's a story behind that, but that's not probably what we're talking about tonight. But yes, that was my baptism of fire. And I was a radically pro-choice feminist, uh, top aide and policy analyst to Dr. Martin Anderson, who became Reagan's chief domestic policy advisor in the White House, second floor of the West Wing, just not not far from being over the Oval Office. Marty was pro-choice. Um, in fact, he and his wife, Annalise, were so close to Ayn Rand that they were one of a handful of individuals who were invited to her wedding in her small apartment. Uh, and Ayn Rand was a radical feminist. 
radical feminist. She was a radical individualist, okay? Mm. So um, anyway, I then, I, I was one of the handful of people who went into the Carter White House ahead of time and saw the panic um, that was happening there. They were trying desperately to get the hostages home. But of course, um, Reagan and Bush, uh, excuse me, uh, vice president, vice presidential uh, running mate of Reagan's and William Casey, who became Reagan's first CIA director, had cut this secret treasonous deal with the Khomeini regime. Um, that is the subject of my book, October Surprise. And of course, Carter was never going to be able to bring the hostages home. The deal had already been cut on October 18th and 19th, 1980 in Paris. So... Wait a minute. What was, was, was for people that obviously don't know much history, like me? Um, this was the deal that was cut by someone flying the to be Vice President George Bush to Paris in an SR seventy one. Is that correct? No, I don't believe so. Um, that was the claim of a guy by the name of Gunther Rossbacher who claimed to be one of George H.W. Bush's personal assassin teams, by the way. Um, And that becomes very relevant to what I wanted to talk about, if we could get to it, on my items, because I was there the day of the attempted Reagan assassination attempt and have very, very critical historical personal experience uh, in the White House the day of the assassination attempt when we get to that. Um, But no, not in SR-71. Um, this guy, Russ Bacher, was a fabulous and a serial liar. Um, but did he go there? Yes, he did. Uh, almost certainly in a BAC 111. But, you know, those are details that are not that important. Mm-hmm. Um, George Bush Sr. and Casey did cut this treasonous deal um, on the, uh, between uh, the 18th and 19th of October of 1980. And all those details are in my book, October Surprise, which is available on Amazon still, um, published back in 1989. And a number of books that were published also confirming all of that, that were published the first one almost three years later by Gary Sick, uh, Navy Captain, uh, Naval Intelligence Captain Gary Sick, who had been the top Iran advisor in the National Security Council under Ford, Carter and the new Reagan Bush administration for a while. And it took him about three years to realize that I was right. He published a book by this exact same title, stole most of my material, didn't even mention my book about three years later. But there are a number of other books on um, the details about the October surprise treason of steel between the Reagan Bush senior campaign and the Khomeini regime to delay the release of our hostages for almost three more months. Um, And for those who remember, they were released literally as, it's interestingly, not Reagan, but George H.W. Bush right after him completed his oath of office, right, during the inauguration ceremony. Mm. And the plane was allowed to leave by Khomeini off of the Tehran airstrip and came back to the United States literally as those two oaths of office were completed. Um, you know, any kindergartner could figure out that there was a link between them, right? Well, I remember watching the the inauguration on television and then the subsequent ceremonies. And part of the tradition is that after the new president is sworn in, everybody runs up to Capitol Hill and they have this gorgeous, lavishly serviced uh, luncheon. And they did. 
And it was during the luncheon that Reagan gets up and makes the announcement that the hostages to Iranian airspace. Yeah, except we know that they actually left, uh, well, they left the Tehran airport. It would take a little while to get outside of the boundary of Iran. But, um, you know, they had left, they had left uh, Iranian airspace long before he made that announcement. Artistic license, okay. Yeah. So I did want to comment about the uh, Washington Monument, if I could, because you brought Well, um, I would like to refer people to the program that we recently did on this show, The Other Side of Midnight, with myself and Scott Walter in Georgia, Lambert, who's on the show tonight. That's a great program. I can't remember the precise date. I thought it was the, wasn't it the 19th of July? Anyway, it wasn't that long ago. It's two or, it it's about two or three weeks ago, I think. Yeah, yeah two or three weeks ago. It's called Scotland Unearthed. And um, I would refer you to all of the details, uh, especially my presentation uh, in that program that I won't be able to go into tonight because we have a slightly a very important but related topic. But as far as the Washington Monument, um, I did mention in that program, and I'll mention here again, that it makes absolute perfect sense that the Washington, underline the word Washington for George Washington Monument, is an Egyptian obelisk because of the absolutely central uh, links, uh, not only to ancient Egypt, but in particular to the uh, Orion, Isis, Horus, high myth or high belief system of the ancient Egyptians, um, because the uh, the Washington family crest, uh, which I've personally experienced in George Washington's ancestral home, uh, being there in Selgrave Manor, England, even though he was uh, he, he also had. Scottish royal blood uh, in his in his lineage, um, but his ancestral home, going back quite a number of uh, hundreds of years, was in Selgrave Manor in England, and um, the Washington family crest is in a beautiful stained glass window in their dining room there, and it is the three stars and the two stripes in red and white, and those three stars are the three stars in the belt of Orion. Oh my! Both Orion is Osiris. Yep. And three stars in the belt of Orion point to Sirius, which is the star of Isis. Okay. And of course, the dollar bill, um, the Great Seal of the United States, the reverse side of the Great Seal of the United States, of course, and our dollar bill, the pyramid, the Great Pyramid uh, in Giza, in by Cairo, Egypt, by the Sphinx, and um, with the thirteen. Uh, 13 uh, levels and um, you know there's there's and, and the eye in the pyramid above at the top um, which of course is the um, is the eye of, of uh, Ra it's the eye of the sun god the original ancient sun god of ancient Egypt so yeah um, I'm not surprised there's an obelisk for the Washington Monument not at all <laughs> Well, the more you look at these interconnections, the more profound and deep and incredibly meaningful, and I believe meaningful for this time, as we're going to try to lay out tonight, they, they become. Uh, are, are we at a kind of a pausing point? Because I want to go to Georgia to context before Marvin, how we almost didn't get George Washington as president and the monument and all the Egyptian connections or 
or or did we? Yeah, we can do that, but as long as we come back to the rest of my items in particular, oh, we will too. Uh, which is, I was there for the Reagan assassination attempt, which is related to all of this. I think that is is a further part of the story a little bit down the road. If you yeah, okay. let's, let's go to Georgia for who George Washington really was and how he wasn't even offered the presidency to begin with. Uh, Georgia, yeah, you, you are on. <laughs> if people will go to my guest items on the show notes. Um, you can go to the number five, which is the crown of America. That's a PDF that is downloadable for everybody that talks about the fact that the crown of America, because in those days, monarchy was all that we knew. And there was a big contingency that wanted a new monarchy in the colonies. Um, this is, even, this is even after the revolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first uh, choice was Bonnie Prince Charlie, who was the Scottish royalty that lost the royalty at the Battle of Culloden in 1745, I believe. Um, those Outlander fans out there will know about the Battle of Culloden <laughs> when the English took over and uh, the clans were trounced into the dust. Bonnie Prince Charlie dressed up as a woman and beat it out of there in a boat and uh, was in exile. He was aging and in exile in France and Italy at the time, but it was the royal lineage. And so the crown of America was offered to him first, which he declined. There were a couple of other uh, interesting uh, candidates. Uh, one was a Prussian prince, uh, Prince Heinrich of Prussia. Oh, good grief. Uh, and uh, that didn't work out because he was Russian. <laughs> A big surprise. Um, another candidate was Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent, who was the fourth son of King George III, who we just fought the war against. Hmm. So that was next before he even knew about it. And, of course, then it was offered to Washington. As Barbara mentioned, Washington actually, uh, way back when, has a family connection to the royal lineage of Scotland. And it's interesting that after the Battle of Culloden, a lot of Scots came to the United States, particularly in the Washington, D.C., Virginia, West Virginia, uh, Carolina area. You look at all the place names around Washington, D.C., Annandale, uh, Arlington, Alexandria, Dumbarton Oaks. These are all Scots names. Ah. And so uh, uh, Washington was offered uh, the crown. And there, there was a wonderful book written some years back called uh, Cincinnatus, which is uh, about Washington's uh, relationship, uh, mythologically wise, to Cincinnatus, the Roman senator who declined uh, the, 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 the robe of purple, as they say. So Washington refused. But uh, when, it, when Bonnie Prince Charlie didn't pick it up, it went, bounced around a bit, but then it went to Washington. I mean, and this, it's is, this, this is a story we never hear about. No, I know. 
it's really George, interesting. Could you, could you explain to us who was considering these other candidates? What group well, of people? I, I have no idea other than, you know, the political parties at the time were uh, the ones we know about from, from – uh, from our, our history books, you know, the Patriots and the Tories, but there were uh, quite a large contingency of monarchists who wanted to continue the monarchy because this was the only method of government that they knew uh, for centuries in old Europe. Uh, and so obviously it came from those quarters, but um, uh, fortunately for us, it didn't stick and Washington was... Uh, uh, pre-visioned pre enough to well, say, you, nope, that's not what we're about. You know, I'm kind of at the stage where I don't really trust in Providence. I don't think it was ever in the cards, even if the monarchists thought they were going to have continuity. And for that, we're going to turn to Marvin at the uh, after the top of the hour. So please continue. So they offered it well, to, to an old Scott Geezer. He said yeah. no. Then yeah. they offered it to a Prussian guy who, of course, had hired the Hessians to fight against the colonies during the war. And he said no, right? Right. Um, and again, Henry of Prussia's drawback was that he was Prussian. Uh, <laughs> and this was one of the most strictest, absolutist monarchies in Europe. Um, well, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> be behind the scenes of this maneuvering, uh, you brought up the point earlier. Washington was a Freemason. Yes. And since the time of Elizabeth I, the esoteric brotherhoods had a plan for this land that didn't include the monarchy. Nope. That included development of the common man, as you say. And Washington being high up in Freemasonry and having his paws probably in Rosicrucianism as well, um, knew that you know, a monarchy was not part of that plan. Georgia? Uh, yeah. Do we know why these first three candidates declined, though? Well, uh, I tell you, we, we, we have to pause because we're at the top of the hour, and these are hard breaks to the top of the hour. So my guests this morning are Georgia Lambert, Barbara Honiger, and Marvin D. Jones, our citizen historian. And I thought this would be interesting. This is another version of Hail to the Chief. OtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, 
you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. what you call in baseball a change-up. This is Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and Copeland's fanfare for the common man. This is something really cool. Remember, the whole concept, as Georgia just said, behind the real creation of this experiment was for the first time in history for thousands of years since the Greeks had tried it and kind of wasn't really, you know, what we all think it was. This experiment was really dedicated at a foundational level, as Marvin is going to background us in very shortly, in the idea that ordinary people are in fact extraordinary people because they can and should determine their own lives. Copeland and the fanfare of the common man. Welcome back to the other side of midnight on this Saturday, August 13th, 2022. Georgia Lambert, our resident metaphysician, had the floor. Georgia? I had asked a question to why the first three candidates declined, which is rather surprising. Do we know? Well, Bonnie Prince Charlie declined because he was old and he had gotten um, very, very comfortable in uh, a very... Uh, lackadaisical materialistic lifestyle at that point and couldn't really be bothered. <laughs> um, he was he was a little he was a little uh, oh, stuck up print. Um, that's, that's putting it very nicely Barbara. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't going to use the word print actually. 
Um, as far as Heinrich of Prussia, uh, it was never offered to him. The, the idea was nixed before it got to him, but he was considered for a while. Um, well, didn't but, the Prussians fight on the side of England in our Revolutionary War? Well, some of them did, yeah. but but um, uh, that friendship between von Steuben and Alexander Hamilton, and it kind of went around through that quarter. Uh-huh. But but that that offer was nixed before the prince even knew about it. And as far as Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent, the fourth son of George the Third. Um, uh, you know, this was an idea that didn't go any place because George the Third would have never allowed it. So the only why, why not? He could have won the the whole Revolutionary War by putting him on the American throne. Why why would he nix it? Who knows? But, yeah. but, I'm hoping but, uh, that Marvin, who is waiting patiently <laughs> in the wings, will have he some, has the answer. But, some but, of these but, answers. But it's interesting to uh, uh, imagine that, uh, uh, you know, his daughter, uh, great Queen Victoria, could have been American if, uh, if that had all worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention, you were, you were talking about the uh, Washington Monument earlier. The way that it has now worked out is that the Washington Monument is almost dead center. Not quite, because the land was too sloppy. Um, it's a swamp. It's, almost, it's a swamp. Washington's it's, a it's, swamp, it's, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's almost dead center in the middle of the temple, which is the four directions, the White House in the north, the uh, Capitol building in the east, the Jefferson Memorial in the south, and the Lincoln Memorial in the west. Oh. The the obelisk is in the altar position. And if you remember back in the 60s, there was a fellow named Peter Tompkins that did a big book on pyramids and power, the power of pyramids, and oh, yeah, and all. Yeah. And and all, he also did one on obelisks, and he talked about obelisks as being invocative, drawing energy from the atmosphere or the greater uh, atmosphere uh, into the earth. So it's an invocative instrument in the altar position right in the center of the Masonic Temple in Washington. And I have All... another piece of information to add to this. I know this personally because I've been there. And that is that uh, George Washington originally, um, originally intended and wanted to uh, locate the Capitol, you know, the Congress, uh, in the slightly raised hill uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, which is which instead was made the site of the first Masonic Temple of the United States, of which he was the Grandmaster. Is it Washington supposed to be buried in the in the catacombs of that temple, Marvin? I don't, I don't. I think it's time to go to Marvin D. Jones. The reason I picked Marvin as a citizen historian is because Marvin epitomizes to me what the founders had in mind, which is not experts, not specialists, not you know people that spend their entire lives in politics and don't represent anybody but themselves, but the common man, the common person, the the well-informed citizen who participated in keeping the republic alive in answer to Ben Franklin's uh, uh, questioner at the uh, uh, 1787 convention after the completion of of the Constitution. So, Marvin, 
do you know why there were three other choices selected as the head of state, the chief of state, the, the monarch before the, the founders kind of got around to uh, Washington? No, I cannot help you uh, oh, no. on that. One. Ah. <laughs> right. I am sorry. I cannot help you on that one. Wow. I, I do have a piece of information that will help us, if I can add it. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, now this is, uh, you know, like, like much of the information that comes to someone who has decided that they just want to know the truth, um, you become like a magnet to iron filings, that all of those little data points that uh, you have to pull together, they're like, they're like iron filings, and they just come right to you. And that happens through synchronistic events. And that's what my life has been about. And one of these synchronistic events was, believe it or not, uh, the first time I ever uh, was in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, that was about 12 years ago or so. I landed, and within about an hour of landing, uh, ended up, because I wanted to see old Richmond, um, uh, I landed at the old St. John's Church on a little hill in Richmond and walked up the rather steep steps and happened to walk in the door just as the once-a-year annual reenactment of the Virginia Delegation Convention where, um, where Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death uh, was, was uh, the turning point and there, it was the debate over whether or not the Virginians would join George Washington, who was already raising an army to fight mm. the, the British. Patrick and Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. That was the turning point. And then they voted. And interestingly, the vote wasn't, you know, it's pretty close. Um, but anyway, they did decide. George Washington was not there, but most of the other uh, the, the other. Virginian, Virginian delegates were there. Okay, so the big surprise to me, and uh, we were told before it started, uh, we were sitting in, it was like a church, you know, it is a church. I was sitting in a pew as an audience with other audience members watching this reenactment in full original costumes from the period. And they were, they had practiced all year long the actual script. There was someone who was writing down like a, like a transcriber exactly what was said way back then and they have that there and they use exactly what was said in order to recreate it and to my astonishment there was one point where where one of the delegates stood up and reminded everyone that we're not against king george we're not against the king we're against the british parliament the english parliament it's the Parliament who passed these horrendous acts. Hmm. So they didn't, even then, they didn't think of themselves as being against the king. Fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And I have that whole um, transcript that I brought back with me. Okay. okay. Uh, all right, Marvin. Um, how did we wind up with a republic as opposed to a monarchy if the power and the elites and the money basically wanted continuity after these pesky, you know, rebels uh, had basically had a dust up with King George, who they had no quarrel with. Well, 
at the well first of all the convention was held in secret so that there could be a, a frank exchange of views and if you consider the fact that uh, the president of the convention who was chosen unanimously happened to be the man who had previously been the commander-in-chief of the Continental Forces. And even as he fought the war under the uh, auspices of the Articles of Confederation, Washington was committed to having a republic then. Because even when uh, there was to a certain extent, an uprising by some of his uh, officers who were having a, a, a meeting and they were upset with a, a, a number of things with, with the uh, arrangements of the Continental uh, Congress. Uh, Washington reminded them of what the whole point uh, was of what they were, were fighting for. Because after all, even if you look at the uh, country's uh, birth certificate, the, the declaration, uh, uh, Jefferson's line uh, there is about how uh, governments are established by the, uh, quoting, the consent of the governed. So occurs under a republic, not under a uh, monarch. Hmm. So the backstory as to why the in crowd basically wanted continuity to hell with this republic nonsense, you know, we're going to go with a monarchy. I mean, that, that's a story we need to figure out, and maybe on a, another edition of this uh, series we will, we will get to it. But I, I think there's an extraordinary story there. There's got to be some document, some historian, you know, uh, some John Meacham-like figure who's looked into this and, and, you know, has laid out why we got what we got as opposed to what would have been disaster. Well, from the moment the convention started, they worked off of what was called the Virginia Plan, because James Madison was from Virginia, where they had, a, a, they had an outline of the kinds of changes we had to make because the Articles of Confederation were be generous. And that definitely what had contained absolutely nothing about having a, a monarchy. When, ha, having read the Fed, uh, not the Federalist, but having read Madison's notes taken at the convention, there, there is no mention at all of having a monarch. The debates uh, went on about how to. Uh, some people would think about maybe just making some tinkering around with the Articles of Confederation, but uh, the momentum uh, changed very quickly when uh, Madison put forth the uh, Virginia plan. And essentially, all all that summer, the, the debates uh, uh, were more or less uh, based around the Virginia plan that people people reacting to, to that. So the center of gravity uh, was the Virginia plan. So for those of us that may have been kind of sleeping through class when they talked about the articles and all that, why don't, why don't you reiterate quickly what other forms of government we tried after the revolution or actually during 
the revolution and then subsequent before we got to the idea we really need something really different. Well, the Articles of Confederation essentially established a, uh, a league and the, the states obtained all, all of their independence and that caused a real problem during the war because uh, the, the Congress could not uh, 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 tax directly uh, the way that uh, uh, supplies uh, and or money uh, got into the Continental Treasury were, uh, was through what was called uh, requisitions. And, and, and ultimately to Washington's army. Exactly, exactly. And that was, uh, again, to be generous, absolutely inadequate. So and this also, was kind of like passing the hat among 13 very individualistic people, and half of them say, what do you need that for? Bingo. Great way to put it. Great way to put it. And furthermore, there, there was no executive. Now, there was a president of the Congress, but there was no independent executive who, who could, could really uh, take charge in emergency situation. Obviously, if you're fighting a war against the British Empire, that qualifies as an emergency situation. So, so the so the um, there, there was a, under the the um, Articles of the Confederation. There were uh, there there was a, essentially a parliamentary type system where there was a president uh, of the of the Parliament or the Congress. Is that correct? But not uh, an executive of the United States. Right. Right. Okay. And, and there was also no uh, national judiciary. Mm-hmm. Now, how was how was the the Congress, uh, this confederation of thirteen colonists? How were, I mean, they they really asked for donations. They they couldn't levy taxes. They couldn't command. They basically had to beg, right? That was pretty much it. Uh, that that was the. That was the system. And after the war, there was a great concern about whether this uh, new republic was going to survive. Because, uh, well, particularly Washington, Hamilton, uh, Madison were, were greatly concerned. And Hamilton wrote a series of uh, articles called the uh, Continentalists in which he constantly appealed for uh, a new arrangement, uh, a, new, a new system a, a system of government, which fortunately did take place at the convention. Well, were there any other extant models either at that time contemporaneously or in earlier history that the founders could turn to to figure out how to put together a new form of government that could actually work? Um, 
Well, the the Roman Republic was something that they uh, they, they they studied uh, because even in the in the Federalist Papers, uh, once they had, were written after the Constitution had been completed at the convention, uh, Hamilton makes uh, some extended uh, references to how things uh, work in the uh, Roman Republic. So they, they had they had that uh, as 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 a model. And as I mentioned last week, in preparation for the convention. James Madison gathered the constitutions of the ancient republics to study where they succeeded and where, where they failed and why. And the consistent reason for their failure was of, of foreign influence. Mm-hmm. No foreign entanglements, right? Yeah, that's right. That, that was the consistent reason why uh, the ancient republics failed. Foreign, foreign influence. It's so and ironic. There, Go ahead, Barbara. Is there any um, in your in your study and research? Mm-hmm. Is there anything to the claim? I believe it's the Iroquois. I was just uh, going to get there. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Oh, right, right. Yeah, was that one of the models that was studied? And and was any of that actually used in our constitution? Can I throw something in there yeah. about that? Yeah. Sure. Go ahead. There, there is uh, pretty extensive uh, research by the Rosicrucians as to the connections between uh, Franklin, uh, among others, and the Iroquois nation and the early Rosicrucians at Ephrata. Um, that is like a whole other subject. But yeah, uh, there was a lot of influence from the, the way the Iroquois nations functioned uh, and uh, and their influence on Franklin, among others. Well, if I recall correctly, uh, the the senior women in the Iroquois nation had to agree for, for the men to go to war. And what happened to that? <laughs> <laughs> Let me throw another weird little bit here. Um, Marvin was bringing up uh, the Roman connection, right? Um, if you look on the Great Seal of the United States, the pyramid on that Great Seal is not the Great Pyramid. It's much steeper. Mm. It's, a diff- it's a different pyramid. The pyramid that it mirrors is the tomb of Gaius Cestius, who was a Roman senator uh, or a Roman praetor and tribune of the people. This guy oh. spent... This guy spent time in Egypt after the Cleopatra craze, and the Romans were, you know, whisking off obelisks like there was no tomorrow (laughs) because they were immersing themselves in the Isis cult. Mm. And pyramid that that is on our back seal um, is his tomb. It was supposed to have taken about 330 days to construct. And it had shafts inside. And of all the Roman burials that have crumbled to dust, this one is still intact. And it's now part of the Aurelian Wall just outside of Rome. I was going to say, is it that big white pyramid uh, just outside Rome? It's, it's, it's at the Porta San Paolo in the south of Rome. Um, so there's this odd connection between a senator of the people who was 
really into the whole ISIS thing, coming back to Rome and building this pyramid as his tomb that supposedly had frescoes and statues and all kinds of stuff. Wow. And and you anybody can Google it. I mean, it's a sort of a tourist attraction. It's Gaius, G-A-I-U-S. How do you spell his name? Could you spell it? Sure. G-A-I-U-S, Cestius, C-E-S-T-I-U-S. It's 12 B.C. 12 B.C., you say? Yeah, that's (laughs) what they're telling us. Okay. And so was his body discovered in this tomb? Uh, I don't think they've opened it. Oh. Well, you know, the the People's Tribune, I happen to know this from my late husband who studied studied it. He was a sociologist, studied that period of time in Rome and many other. Um, But um, he explained to me one day and showed me the scholarship that the Roman Tribune had phenomenal power. The Roman Tribune, as I recall, could walk into the Senate and arrest the senator. Fascinating. So, you know, have the audience Google it, and you can see pictures of this thing, and you, you'll you see by the angles that it's like the one on our seal, which is well, not the great ceremony. I don't know. But isn't it so interesting? You think it's a modeled after this tomb because of its appearance being similar, but is there any scholarship or source that says that's who made the great seal intended it to research it? There probably is within uh, Masonic tomes, I would imagine. Hmm. But but isn't it interesting that they used this geometry rather than the Great Pyramid? And why was that? So what is the reason then, obviously, this this actual pyramid for, for this Roman centurion or whoever he was? Um, uh, uh, tribune, Tribune. Tribune, the Roman Tribune um, in 12 BC. Obviously, there's no capstone with an eye in it and no, no uh, you know, continuity no, no, between the top of the pyramid and the eye in the pyramid capstone. So where does that come from? Well, that goes into some very deep metaphysical stuff, which and has Egypt. Uh, yes, and of course Egypt. Well, we got uh, about three minutes to the bottom of the hour, so regale us with pyramid stuff. Well, the eye of the pyramid. You know, any truth has many layers, just like a parable. It can be it looked at from many different angles and sides and levels, and in the process of initiation, there are certain meditation activities that involve activating the crown chakra above the head, the ajna center in front of the forehead, and a third center at the base of the skull. And when these three are activated together, their magnetic fields overlap in the very center of the head and open up that allows the overshadowing soul direct access to the personality so the eye of the soul is brought into activity via certain meditation practices and the eye in the pyramid is a symbol of that among other things well it may be a symbol of it you know in in esoteric um, belief and practice but if you just walk into the um, you know the museum in Cairo uh, you will see a number of these pyramidians from way, way back, thousands of years 
BC um, with the eye of, I believe it's the eye of Horus, right? Yeah. Right in the middle of this uh, black, uh, presumably black granite uh, pyramid um, that is, was the capstone. Mm. Hey, guys, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are Barbara Honiger, who you just heard there describing all these little pyramidians lined up in the famous Cairo Museum. And, of course, uh, uh, Georgia Lambert is with us, our resident metaphysician, Marvin D. Jones, our citizen historian. And, again, in this segment, we're using another version of Hail to the Chief on our homage tonight to the American presidency. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back on this Saturday night. One quick one half hour to go till Sunday morning dawns here in the land of enchantment. We're doing an homage tonight to the American presidency, a deep dive into how did we get a chief executive of a republic in the Western Hemisphere of planet Earth almost a quarter of a thousand years ago, a quarter of a millennia that harkens back in the persona of the president himself to the ancient god Osiris of the ancient Egyptians down to the coat of arms and the significators of the three brilliant stars of Orion, which of course in the Greek is Osiris, and in the persona of the first president himself, George Washington.
Oh, does that take me back? Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Okay, my guests have returned. Uh, who wants to pick up the conversation? Can I throw something in real fast? By all means. About, about Hail to the Chief? Yes, yes. <laughs> I was living in Yorba Linda when Nixon was buried. And uh, his uh, his burial place and library was right down the street from me. And, of course, there was a lot of fanfare and all that kind of stuff. Now, this is Southern California, right? Just as he's being buried, it starts to hail. <laughs> oh, my God. It's the forces of nature doing a hail to the chief. I thought that was a little over the That's top. That's hysterical. It lasted, it lasted about five, six minutes, and then it was gone. It was Were hysterical. Were you aware of the pun at the time? Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Well, that's a good segue, Richard, if this is a good time to talk about the Reagan assassination attempt. In well, my- let, me, yeah. l- let me do one little interstitial thing, because the way I got onto this whole President-Egyptian extraordinary Osirian connection is by way of uh, Abydos, which is a very famous place in, the, in the, you know, southern Egypt, which has a, a, an extraordinary temple, and the temple... Uh, built by Seti I, inside has lintels. It's a very uh, hypostyle kind of lots of columns holding up the roof. It kind of looks like the Pentagon. If you look mm-hmm. at the front of the Pentagon, the, the temple of Seti I at Abydos could be a transplant from the shores of the Potomac directly into ancient Egypt. It's so squarish. It's so modern. It's so uh, World War II. But yeah, it, it is. It's, it's thousands weird. of years. Exactly. Well, Seti I was a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? He was a uh, um, fundamentalist, reincarnist type guy. He looked to bring that which was ancient and old and worked up to be new again. So on one of the lintels in the ceiling of this temple at Abydos, there is this depiction, a series of, of glyphs that look for all the world like a modern Abrams tank, a helicopter, yeah. a land speeder from uh, Star Wars that Luke yep. ran around. It, yeah. And and the and the conventional wisdom is, oh, these are uh, by the Egyptologists, of course, who are bought and paid for. Um, these are just palimpsests, meaning plaster fell out, and by accident you have all these incredible images of extraordinary high tech. Now, yeah, right. now the, the, the dumb folks look at this and they say, oh, my God, there's been a huge cover up. The ancient Egyptians had land speeders. No. no. What Seti I was doing was memorializing his own knowledge through ancient, sacred, carefully preserved texts, probably occult secret society preservation, the forerunners of the modern Masons. And he was hearkening back to a time when humans on earth 30,000 years ago in fact had all this stuff because it was the last previous era where earth had high technology before something catastrophic wiped it all out and we started up from the primeval swamp once again so i have a I, i don't think that the Occam's razor interpretation to me a much simpler interpretation because it happens today is that this uh, there was a 
uh, a secret society that was able to time travel, uh, at least mentally, like remote viewing. Wait, wait, wait. That's an Occam's razor answer? Yes, absolutely. Time compared. travel? I said remote viewing, time travel in quotes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that they were actually looking to our time period, which is very, very interesting. See, I'm thinking documents, <laughs> and you're thinking remote viewing into time, and we will not it resolve could, this tonight. But, but I'm, it could be it could be a combination of both because if you look in India, you've got the the Vedas and the um, uh, the descriptions of the manas and nuclear war and all mm-hmm. that kind of well, stuff. Well, the, the reason I'm tending toward the ancient preserved documents, history, going back to Marvin, who we'll bring back on stage in a moment here, is because we have an example contemporaneously in the stunning images taken of Mars by both curiosity and perseverance. There are objects, artifacts, vehicles in these images that look like they could come right off a showroom out of Detroit uh, yesterday. And they're obviously in ruin. They're not brand new, but they appear to be of a period on Mars when the same kind of answers to the same kind of problems, you know, form follows function. If you're building a vehicle and it goes fast, it's got to be streamlined. It's got to be self-propelled, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm hearkening to the preserved ancient sacred document but I'm not going to exclude the idea of the documents became a roadmap for remote viewers to kind of peer into time, either forward or backward. But let me or, get... Let or they could be remote viewing into the future and recording them in documents in what is our past. Yeah, but how do we prove it? I like science where you prove things. You can speculate all you want, but I want proof. And we got proof. Well, I work with, I work with the remote viewers at SRI. It's real. That doesn't say this is what happened in this case. So let's, we're not going to solve oh, that tonight. Proof, no. <laughs> we're not going to solve it tonight, but it obviously will be future discussion. So let me do a, a linking thing here. The thing that I got so intrigued with when I saw Abydos, and I actually sent a Fox producer on camels surrounded by Egyptian guards with AK-47s to Abydos to get actual video for the Fox Television Network of the lintel in the roof of Seti the First Temple so I could go on Fox uh, and lay out this theory many, many years ago. And it was right after that that someone in that hotel room tried to kill me. And that's a whole other story. This is, you know, 20 plus years ago. Did it go out? Did it actually go out on Fox? That program? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Live. Oh, I want to watch that. And then the next morning, these guys tried to kill me through the wall by giving me a heart attack. Anyway, long story. We don't have time tonight. I want to read this. This is from Ancient Egypt, which was published in 1848 by an ancient Egyptian historian, George Robbins Giddon. And it starts out this way. O thou, my defender, Osiris, great God, Lord of Toiri, president of Abydos, investigator of the heaven, Lord of Natui, king of the gods. So George Washington, as president of this incredibly young and fragile republic, both then and obviously now, chose this extraordinary model going back through ancient Egypt. And so Washington was Osiris. And that's why in that garden, 
in Washington, the Scottish Rite Temple, he is listed as Mason first and President second because the masonry connects all the way back to ancient Egypt, to Atlantis, and as we're learning more every day, ultimately to the planet Mars, which brings me back to well, Marvin. Hold on, hold on. I want to just remind everybody, mention it already, that the Washington family crest, the three stars at the top of his crest, which are also the crest or the heraldic shield of Washington, D.C., to this day, those three stars are the three stars in the belt of Orion, which was Osiris in the ancient Egyptian pantheon. So, Marvin, you're very patient. What was the conversation at that constitutional convention that moved in, in Washington's ideas us from the idea of continuity, a monarchy just with a different guy at the top, to something which was stunningly different and strange and alien, that's kind of like a pun, uh, a republic, a fragile republic. Uh, let me just give you some uh, background, uh, some excerpts from the debate that took place at the convention uh, by those who are most directly responsible for the uh, creation of the office of, of the presidency. Uh, Governor uh, Morris said, the executive magistrate should be the guardian of the people, even of the lower classes, against legislative tyranny, against the great and the wealthy, who in the course of things will necessarily compose the legislative body. And of course, the question arises, how was that to be done? And Morris said, to be the guardian of the people let him be appointed by the people. Uh, James Wilson, another delegate, agreed, and he said, he who is to execute the laws will be as much the choice, as much the servant, and therefore as much the friend of the people as he who is to make them. And as to what the executive was to do, uh, Wilson said, be impartial and promote the interests of the whole. So that is an overview of what the presidency was to be. I can go into more detail about once the office was created, uh, created uh, in the Constitution, the Constitution itself was uh, sent back to the to the state conventions for ratification i can i can quote this passage from uh the federalist papers number 70 by hamilton okay he says, let, let me okay, I'm sorry. let me ask you a dumb question because i think it's important mm -hmm. now how did we with the models of history being monarchies and kind of limited monarchies in some degree with parliaments but the parliament really was under the control of the monarchy that kind of thing. How did we get to a tetrahedral, three-cornered uh, judiciary, legislative, and executive branch, the incredible checks and balances idea? Well, that goes back to the uh, Virginia plan that I mentioned earlier, that uh, Madison uh, submitted, and that became the uh, 
the, the focus of the debates at the convention. And then, too, you have to remember that they were uh, influenced by uh, philosophers about, uh, like uh, 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 Montesquieu, Montesquieu uh, was the spirit of the laws about how the different uh, departments, different branches of, of power should not be concentrated uh, in, a, in a single uh, place. So that, uh, that played into it. There's also the fact that on a Masonic temple floor, there are three major offices or chairs, oh. one in the east, one in the south, and one in the west. Why not the north? The north is left open for the unseen power to enter the temple. Which brings me, by the way, back to if, if you go to my link number, I think it's number five. No, it's six. The one with the gorgeous photo of the Washington Monument at night. That link mm-hmm. takes you to a, a Egyptian academic study page on Egyptian obelisks. And the obelisk is specifically designed in the ancient Egyptian tradition, which I think is, you know, kind of oblique hyperdimensional physics to conduct energies from the sky, from the sun, and the parallel pyramidian shape at the top is supposed to be channeling the rays of the sun streaming down to earth. And of course, the sun is the most powerful source of hyperdimensional transference of information and energy between higher dimensions into this dimension in the solar system. So none of this is accidental. This is part of some incredible grand design. And my only question is, whose design, how old was it, and was in fact the creation of this experiment designed, as I mentioned at the top of the show, for this time, because now is when the choosing between two forms of human existence, slavery or free, is coming to a point. Yeah, by the way, Richard, I click on number six, and all I get is the, I don't get this link you're talking about, I only get the photo. Oh, Keith, I think we need to correct that, because I sent him a link with the photo. So we will Yeah, fix, there's no link yeah, except we for will, the photo. We will fix that, because remember, in the Egyptian mythology, the obelisk was identified with the king, and the chief king, the first king, Osiris, so by metonymy, which is a fancy English way of saying by connection, deep intrinsic connection, Washington and all subsequent presidents are viewed as a duality. Osiris, who is the god of the underworld and resurrection, and his son Horus, who is the resurrection and its companion on the west and the east by the setting and the rising of the sun, and of course the whole alignment of the Capitol, the monument, the Lincoln Memorial is facing the setting sun or the rising sun, depending upon which side of the monument you're standing on at dawn or sunset. Anyway, right. uh, well, there's, there's reason to believe uh, that the very first obelisk was at Heliopolis. Yep. It uh, was the solar, the original solar religion um, of Ra uh, by different names. And that the original obelisk was simply a pillar on which the um, the Benben stone, which was a very large black pyramidian shaped meteorite, 
uh, was put. But we don't know for sure because we never found the Ben Ben stone. We haven't found the Ben Ben stone, but that is the that is what you learn by um, by studying the obelisk. Okay. So, Marvin, you were going to quote Franklin, I believe. Well, the, uh, actually, it was Hamilton. But Hamilton. before I get there, I want to go back to the, the uh, three branches. Uh, this is something that is also uh, connected to what, what has been called the cycle of governments. Okay. All right? And under that, uh, say, uh, you would have say one of the, of course, the earliest form would be the, the, the king. So you'd have uh, a, a monarch, right? And the opposite, a monarchy, meaning a good king, would be a tyranny, all right? Right. And then uh, you could also have an aristocracy ruled rule by the, uh, uh, the, the best, and then you could have the opposite of that, uh, ruled by the few. And one could also have a democracy, right, mm-hmm. ruled, ruled by, by the uh, people, but then that could, could uh, uh, it, its opposite number, it, 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 its uh, denigration, would be mob rule or ochlocracy uh, that, that it is called. Mm-hmm. So a balanced constitution was considered to, of course, combine the three best elements. Uh, monarchy, where there would be uh, someone, a head of state, who, of course, would be uh, a, a good uh, 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 monarch or a good in- individual, and then have uh, a democratic element and an aristocratic element. So under our system... You mean, you mean one, the, the, uh, the, the two houses, the House and, and right. the Senate? The House right, and the Senate. right. So, so the House would, would be the, the democratic element because they're most immediately accountable to the people every two years. The Senate would be more the aristocratic element because senators serve for six years, but they have sta- the, 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 the body of the Senate is staggered. So only one third of the Senate is up for election every uh, uh, two years. And then, of course, the presidency would be the, in, in a certain sense, the monarchical element because you have a, an individual who would be the, the head of state. Who is accountable and elected by all the people, except for this little thing called the electrical, electrical, electoral college. <laughs> and Richard, let's, let's talk about that misunderstanding Oh, are the, you kidding? Yes, of course. Go for yeah, it. Go. A great misunderstanding Go. About, about the Electoral College, because that was one of the reasons why I wanted to read that passage of the debate that was going on at the convention, where those who were most responsible for the creation of uh, the, the presidency were saying, uh, uh, this is someone who should be uh, appointed by the people. Okay, and hang on, hang on. What I, I, have, okay. I have a news bulletin. Keith has fixed the link, Barbara. Go yes, to the I link. Just opened it. Okay. Yeah, Go ahead, Marvin. Uh, the problem at, at, at the time of the convention, there was no way to reduce, and now I am uh, quoting Madison, 
the different qualifications in the different states to one uniform rule. That was a one uniform uh, rule for voting throughout the nation, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it, uh, uh, you, you go back and read the Constitution as it came out of the convention, it, it says that uh, those who are eligible to uh, vote uh, the same as those who can vote in, in a, a state for, or say for the state House of Representatives, to, to uh, sum it up quickly. Right? Okay. Okay. Now, I'm going to quote uh, Professor Lucius uh, Wilmerding, who wrote uh, a book about the, in fact, the title of it is The Electoral College. And Arthur Schlesinger uh, Jr., who won two Pulitzer Prizes for history, referred to Wilmerding's work as, quote, magisterial, Mm. unquote. Now, uh, in the preface of his book, Professor Wilmerding says this, it is and was the intention of the Constitution that the president should be chosen by the people of the United States considered as one nation. The electoral voting system was adopted instead of a direct voting system only because it seemed the most practicable way to give equal weights to equal masses of persons in a country where the suffrage laws vary. Mm -hmm. Now, the Electoral College uh, has two functions, actually. Popular choice, right? Because, again, to uh, Madison at the convention, he uh, went through this long a review of all the methods that had been considered to choose the, uh, uh, the, the chief magistrate. And at the end, when uh, the particular system that we have was adopted, he, he said the uh, president is now to be elected by the people. Uh, Hamilton uh, said a variation of the same thing in the Federalist Papers where he said the President of the United States would be an officer elected for four years. Now, there was also another element uh, that the Electoral College uh, that that the Electoral College uh, dealt with, and that was national security. That hardly ever gets uh, uh, talked about. But um, it is now. My goodness, yes. I think Marvin's about to tell us. Uh, yes. Um, I'm trying to look for the specific one by by Hamilton. Well, I, I'll I'll start with uh, something that uh, Madison said. Uh, One advantage of electors is, although generally the mere mouths of their constituents, they may be intentionally left sometimes to their own judgment, guided by further information that may be acquired by them. And finally, what is of material importance, they will be able, when ascertaining, which may 
not be till a late hour that the first choice of their constituents is utterly hopeless to substitute in the electoral vote the name known to be their second choice. And I want, oh, here, this is the one by Hamilton that makes it very clear the national security concern. Nothing was more to be desired than that every practicable obstacle should be opposed to cabal, intrigue, and corruption. These most deadly adversaries of Republican government might naturally have been expected to make their approaches from more than one quarter, but chiefly from the desire in foreign powers to gain an improper ascendant in our councils. How could they better gratify this than by raising a creature of their own to the chief magistracy of the union? So he was worried about a mob influenced by a foreign power going the cult route of electing through mass whatever a puppet regime in the form of a really foreign indebted president of the United States if there was direct electoral control by the population. Two of them are describing it is a way to prevent a, uh, trying to remember the, the, the word that they, uh, oh, uh, sure, easy word to remember, a, a demagogue from becoming hmm. president of the United States. So that, just as uh, the, the first quotation by um, by Madison, so say between the time people uh, uh, had chosen someone that they thought was uh, mm. uh, le- legitimate, there, there would there would be in essence say a, a final check on fraud because if subsequently was found found out before the electors would meet that this uh, a, a fellow was a traitor. There, there would be a, a way to, uh, uh, to stop that. Because, or again, talk remember, about, that talk about one of their concerns uh, from the very beginning We're at the top of the hour. We got a hard influence. We got a hard break, and, boy, what a segue into our next segment. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, fanfare for the guy that it's all supposed to be about. And, of course, women. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02.5 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. The other side of midnight. It is now the other side here in the land of enchantment. In the background, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer doing one heck of a job with Aaron Copeland, who is spinning very rapidly in a hyperdimensional fashion in his grave. You know, I had a thought, Marvin, when I was asking the question before, how did we get three branches, three counter-levered, interlocking, checks and balances branches? I wonder if that idea came in part because of the three belt stars in Orion. Marvin, I will have to leave. I will have to leave that to uh, uh, you, you, uh, uh, you three, to uh, inform me about about that. Could I ask a clarifying question of Marvin? Sure. Yeah, it seems to me that the bottom line, Marvin. It, tell me if I'm incorrect. But just before the break, and you were talking about the national security uh, links to the electoral college. I think mm-hmm. the bottom line of that is that uh, some of the framers uh, felt that it would be important for the um, the members of the Electoral College uh, to be able to basically um, substitute their will for the voters at the last minute, but, correct? No, as, a, as I pointed out, that, that was something that was seen as a, a check in the case of a, a demagogue who was under the influence of a, uh, a foreign power. No, I understand. I, I heard you. But, but assuming, I think what you're saying is that they intended for the voters, the what do you call them, the Electoral College voters, um, if they perceived that that had The happened, electors, I think, is what the term. The electors. If yeah. the electors perceived from the time of the, of the uh, election, to when they voted in the Electoral College in their separate states, um, if they perceived that a tyrant had been elected on, on Election Day, that they would be able not to cast their votes for that individual, but for someone else. Correct? Right, it, it, right, right, right. Yeah. But, but okay. it, it, this was not supposed to be something done on, on, a, on a whim to say, oh, of oh but wait, 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 hang on, like- hang on, hang on. There was the Constitution as written. Then it was returned mm-hmm. to the states, and we wound up with the, you know, uh, a Bill of Rights and the amendment process in full swing. And at some point, the the autonomy of the electors to basically be what they call free electors went out the window by law. They are commanded by law, Barbara, to follow the will of the voters 
who elect him. When you go in the booth, as everybody knows, you do not vote for president directly. You vote for a series of people, men and women, who you've never heard of, who are electors for one of the two in our system currently candidates, Republicans or Democrats. So that was that was changed, and I don't remember when the change came in at the same time that there was a change from putting the Senate in control to, I think it's the Tenth Amendment that now has the people in control. Well, my understanding is, I could be wrong, maybe Marvin can clarify this. My understanding is, is that the rules about the uh, the, the electors, whether they're free or not today, that's up to the states, the individual states. Is that correct? Right. Yes, yeah. it is. So each state, uh, Richard, that's not true in every state. There are some states where they're still free. So this is why the North Carolina case that was is going to be brought before the court, I think, this fall or maybe next spring, but certainly within the you know next few months, is so critical because that case basically turns on the whole Trump, uh, John Eastman idea that the legislatures ultimately can countermand the will of the people and basically put anybody they damn well please. Well, I thought that was Michigan, wasn't it? No, it's North Carolina. Okay. Well, re- regardless, um, it hasn't been done, and I don't see how that um, that checks and balance, uh, you know, on the national security uh, link to the elector to the electors. I don't see how it could ever be actually implemented without some kind of massive communication amongst all the electors. But there weren't that many back then. There were only oh, thirteen. Yeah, but remember, the founders were not thinking of from sea to shining sea and fifty states and three hundred million people. They were thinking of Virginia. Massachusetts, Rhode Island, you know, uh, a tiny handful of people who all knew no, each other. I'm talking about today. Um, I don't see how it could work today to have that to have that checks and check. Well, that's anyway, why that's why we get into the modern presidency. I was going to say you're you're reading my mind because I want to leave now the founders and I want to go back to. The gal who actually worked for a president, I forget what number Reagan was. Do you remember? I think he was, um, was 30, he 37? No, oh, I don't remember what he was. Um, Georgia, you can look that up, okay? Homework. I'm not really sure. Um, I, I don't know. Well, Trump is 45. Yep. And Biden's 46, so you, you know, go yeah, backwards. We, we, can, we can work back. Anyway, you were yeah. working for a president when one of the things that the founders were concerned about, which was assassination, uh, yeah. happened. Someone yeah. tried to knock off Reagan in a most peculiar fashion, which has layers and layers and layers of conspiracy that, frankly, have never been adequately, in my opinion, followed up. Well, I've followed it up. Ah. Um, so number two in my items, in Barbara's items, that, you know, you want to tell people how to go to that? Yes, again? you go to the uh, other side of midnight.com. That's our URL, our homepage. Click on the banner for tonight, for Saturday, the 13th of August. That will take you to the guest page. Under that banner duplicate on the guest page, you will find fast links to items. Click on Barbara's name. That will take you to her section of radio and pictures. And item number two is Reagan's would-be assassin wants to do live music concerts. And this is reported as of Friday. Oh, no, today in the Washington Post. Today's Washington Post. Yeah. 
um, which, which was very timely because huh. I wanted to talk about, and I'll try to do it briefly because we're, we're going to want to, you know, bounce off of it, um, going from, Re- from Reagan uh, really into Trump because they're directly linked. Um, many people don't know that Steve Bannon, uh, ever since Reagan, um, you know, was no longer the president, Steve Bannon was looking for the person to take Reagan's mantle. And he thought that he found that individual in Donald Trump and said so. I mean, he has videos out there on that. So uh, there's the Reagan matters. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't Bannon formal naval intelligence? No. Steve Bannon? Yes. Yes. Well, I, don't know, I don't know about that. I'll tell you. I mean, look, <laughs> I if you well, look. He did go to the uh, Naval Academy. If you look, no. I believe he was naval intelligence, so check me on that. But if you go to the concept of deep state versus democracy, all these intelligence agencies around the world are kind of all one one group, no, 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 no. one club, one yeah. one mindset. And so Bannon's background is very important. Well, if he ever was naval intelligence, they probably would like to assassinate him. <laughs> okay. um, but anyway, let me go back to the Reagan assassination attempt because it's a very, very enlightening uh, uh, behind-the-scenes event that I personally experienced. And, you know, if Marvin or any historian or if there are any historians uh, like uh, Richard Spence who are listening tonight or hear this show in the future, I am willing to do a sworn jurat affidavit uh, of what I'm about to tell you. I've mentioned it on the show before, but I'm going to mention it again because of the synchronicity of this Washington Post article about John Hinckley, who is now free as of a few years ago, um, and uh, was in today's Washington Post. So uh, we're going back to uh, March 30th of 1981. Reagan became president in his first term on January 20th, Inauguration Day 1981. Our hostages were released on that day, literally, as he and George Bush completed their oath of office. Uh, in the inauguration ceremony. And that led to my book, October Surprise, but I've already talked about that. So you only go forward from January 20th, January, February, March, uh, two months and 10 days, two months and 10 days. And uh, John Hinckley shoots six bullets at Ronald Reagan or tries, we, we are told that he was only trying to get Reagan, but he actually shot Jim Brady in the head. Who was the press uh, secretary. His press secretary. He shot a Secret Service agent, and he shot um, another, uh, what, what was it, a, 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 another military or, or law enforcement uh, person, uh, and then he shot Reagan. Um, so at least three of those six bullets didn't hit Reagan if he was only trying to hit Reagan. Uh, but anyway, uh, Reagan was shot. And this, by the way, is as he was leaving a luncheon speech at the Washington Hilton, where I've spoken at many conventions in the years since. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I was um, I was in Washington, D.C. I worked in the West Wing of the White House at the time. And um, I was having lunch, and I won't go into it again. It's in a former uh, previous program. But um, my intuition told me that as I was having lunch that I had to get back to my desk. And I literally took off my shoes. I was having lunch at a little deli by Lafayette Park, not far from Lafayette Park. And um, I suddenly spun around in my chair, 
uh, with my lunch partner. And I said, I have to go. And I just left. And I took off my shoes. There were cobblestones on the uh, sidewalks or the street. And I ran back, showed my ID, raced into the White House, ran up the stairs to the second floor, and flopped down on my desk, on the chair at my desk, right outside of the chief domestic policy advisor, Dr. Martin Anderson's office, my boss, mentor, when the door opened, literally five, ten seconds later, and he said, don't say a word. Come into my office, close the door. He whispered to me. And I came in, and the bottom line was, he said, don't tell anybody yet. Reagan has been shot. We don't know if he's going to live. Jim Brady has been shot. Secret Service and another uh, person on the detail have been shot, four men. And um, I am going down to the Situation Room, and I will keep you posted. I want you to get to pull all of our uh, uh, personnel here in the domestic policy shop into my office. I want you to sit, you, Barbara, to sit at my chair behind my desk, turn on CNN, and I want you to monitor the news, and I will come up periodically to get what's on TV. And I will tell everybody what's happened when it is appropriate. He said, I'm going down to the situation. And that was before Alexander Haig got there. Well, the bottom line was, and this is I'm getting to the, to the experience, that is shocking, historically shocking. And that is that we finally learned that afternoon that Reagan had survived physically. We learned that after being about 45 minutes technically brain dead, that Brady came back to life. And we knew that all four men were going to live. Brady would almost certainly be mentally uh, compromised for the rest of his life, which he was. And Reagan, we, we knew that he was physically going to survive, almost certainly, but we didn't know if he would be able to continue in his office because we had no idea what it might have done to his mind. And he was in a probably in an induced coma at that point. So um, time went by, and at about 4 to 5 o'clock, Martin Anderson uh, came back up from the Situation Room for the third or fourth time, and he said, look, everybody go home. We know that Reagan's going to live. We know that Jim Brady has miraculously survived. Just go home. There's nothing more you can do. Our national security team is, is in charge. The Vice, Vice President Bush is back. He's in the Situation Room. I'm going down there periodically. I think I'm going to go home soon, soon, too. So go home. So Marty left. He never came back upstairs, the second floor uh, of the West Wing of the White House. Something said to me, don't go home. I had a very strong guidance, and I didn't go home. And after a while, I was sitting at my desk, and I was following the news in Marty's office on CNN. And I got hungry, so I called down to the White House mess and told him I wanted to have my favorite enchiladas, and I would go down and pick them up. I went down about 6 o'clock to pick up my enchiladas. I came back upstairs, and as I walked back upstairs into the second or second floor offices, I noticed I thought I was the only one there. I noticed that a door was cracked. And I put down my plate or my tray, and I kind of tiptoed up to the door. There seemed to be a light on the inside. It was only cracked a few inches. And I said, hello? It was Ed Gray's office. He was my boss, Martin Anderson's deputy uh, chief of domestic policy to Reagan, number two guy. And he, he had been Reagan's uh, public affairs officer, his media, top media person for the whole three, 
three terms that Reagan had been governor of California previously. Mm. Okay, so his name was Ed Gray, Jerry Watt. I liked Ed Gray. I still do. I mean, he's a wonderful person. I don't know if he's still alive. He was older than me. And at the time, I was 33. Okay, that, that good Masonic number, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, it was a real high point in my life, you can imagine. So I knocked, I kind of knocked, quasi-knocked on the door, and I heard Ed's voice. I said, Ed. I cracked open the door, and I said, Ed, you're still here, too? And he said, Barb, are you still here? You know, we were really close knit group. And he said, come on in. And I said, well, I've got my dinner. And he said, oh, come on in. I just ordered mine, and we'll have dinner in my office together. So I did. He got his, I got mine, and we were starting to have our dinner, not saying very much. And I had, after he brought us, brought us dinner up, and we were both in there, I kind of closed the door almost all the way. And we were in the middle of having our dinner and just kind of being together. It was very difficult to have a conversation, you can imagine. And there was a knock on the door, and it was Ed Meese. And Ed Meese came in. Ed Meese had been at the hospital with Reagan. And Ed Meese had come back from the hospital. He was there with Michael Deaver and Jim Baker. I don't know if Jim Baker was there. I believe he was. So Meese, Baker, and Deaver. Deaver technically represented uh, the interests of Nancy Reagan. Uh, Jim Baker was the White House Chief of Staff, but he was absolutely on the Bush senior side. And, of course, Meese represented Ronald Reagan along with, of course, Nancy Reagan and Deaver. So Meese and Deaver versus Jim Baker. So in the Troika, or just immediately under Reagan in the White House. And my boss, Martin Anderson, the chief domestic policy advisor, was directly under Ed Meese, who was the, at the time, counsel to the president, the chief uh, attorney to the president of the United States, Reagan, and later, second term, became attorney general. So they, okay, so, so Ed Meese knocks on the door. And he kind of cracks it open. Uh, Ed Gray says, Ed, come on in. I had no idea you were still here. And he said, yeah, I'm back from the hospital. And, of course, we asked, how's Reagan doing? He said, well, he's going to survive. And Ed Me said, that's why I'm here. This is very important. What I'm about to tell you is extremely important. And I, Ed was standing in the door. And I said, Ed, would you like me to leave? He said, no, of course not, Barb. Stay. So Ed came in, he didn't sit down, he continued to stand, and he looked straight at Ed Gray, who was still sitting behind his desk, covered with papers. And he said, Ed, we have decided, and you can be certain it wasn't Jim Baker on the, on the George Bush senior vice president side. He said, we have decided, because we don't know, when Reagan comes out of wherever he is right now, we don't know if he's going to be able to continue as president. But we have decided, it was a royal week, we didn't specify who, but of course that included Ed Meese. It would be Meese, Nancy Reagan, and Deaver. He said, we have decided that we are not going to invoke the 25th Amendment and allow Vice President Bush to become acting president. Oh my. And then here's the clincher. And this is what I'm willing to do a sworn Jared affidavit about. And this needs to be part of American history by the right historian to write it up. And then Ed Meese said, now Ed Gray, to Ed Gray, he said, Ed, we have decided that you are the only, you are the most important person right now 
because you having written Ed's, uh, Reagan's speeches for all that time that he was uh, governor of California during all three of his runs for uh, the Republican nomination and all the way through up to now, you are more like Reagan than anyone else. You know his heart and his soul. And so because we have decided not to invoke the 25th Amendment and allow George Bush Sr. to become acting president, until we know if Reagan can take over the, the actual duties of the presidency, we're not, we're going to basically tell the American people that he's doing fine. And if there is any emergency or any major decision that needs to be made, we're going to come to you. Hmm. Are you willing to act in Reagan's stead secretly? Wow. And Ed Gray, at first he said, I mean, he was stunned. You can imagine. My God, I, yes. I realized, I realized I was in this moment of history that was phenomenal. Three of us, only three of us, in the West Wing of the White House, the night of Reagan's assassination attempt. Did he have miraculously survived along with Jim Brady? Miraculously survived. And um, Ed, Ed Gray was stunned. He didn't speak for quite a while, quite a bit. And after a long pause, he basically was shaking his head, he, you know, like, like, like he couldn't believe it. And he said, how could I possibly do this, Ed? I, I can't do that. He didn't say it's not constitutional, it's illegal. He didn't use words like that. But he basically was trying to say, I just can't do it. And Ed Meese basically talked him into it. Uh, in so many words, Ed said to Ed Gray, he said, we don't have any choice, Ed. Now, behind that statement is the clear inference, which I happen to know is true, that George Bush Sr. was the obvious beneficiary if Reagan had died. Right? Well, because did did anybody know at that time, probably not, the Hinckley-Bush connection? Oh, absolutely they knew. And, and not only that, but I don't think that they knew that John Hinckley's brother already had a dinner engagement to celebrate. Oh. I believe the assassination attempt that night in Colorado. Oh, my God. With um, the son of... Um, uh, with uh, one of uh, George Bush Sr.'s, um, let's see, George George Bush Sr.'s sons. Okay. Neil? Uh, yeah, Neil. Neil, Neil, uh, Neil Bush. Hmm. Neil Bush was to have dinner with John Hinckley's brother in Colorado to celebrate. And also, most people don't know this, but John Hinckley Sr., was the person who nominated George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr., to be Reagan's vice presidential running oh. mate at the 1980 Republican convention. Oh, my God. Okay. So behind no, wait, wait. that was, was that the convention where for a while they were dueling or playing with the idea that Gerald, Gerald Ford, Ford would be kind of like a co-presidency and all that? that? Yeah, I was involved in all that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yes, it was. So behind what Ed Me said to Ed Gray, Ed, we don't have a choice. We can't have Vice President Bush become acting president. You know that. Without anything else being spoken. 
without anything else being explicitly said, it was understood it's by like everyone. They're all telepathically linked. And Ed Gray finally said, all right, I will do it. Wow. And that's what happened. And it was quite a while before we even knew that Reagan would be mentally capable of coming back. I believe it was almost a month before I, he came I remember him coming to the window with Nancy in that robe to kind of wave and look, but he looked frail and like he wasn't he the same. so much weight. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so much weight. So that is my experience with on the Reagan assassination attempt. And there's no question in my mind that the George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr. and his his faction, his assassination team were behind it. Wow. And by the way, Nancy Reagan wouldn't have anything to do with him after that. You mean with Bush? That's correct. So how long was this plot? You got any ideas how long this plot was in, in gestation? Well, uh, I, I can't remember right now. Um, well, yes, and it has to do with my book, October Surprise, because George H.W. Bush, after all, was the one who made the arrangement to make with Khomeini to make sure that Carter would, would fail. Would, would lose, yeah. Would lose. And so he was able to, under the table, let Reagan know that, that he, was a, that he could go with Ford if he wanted but if he wanted to win for sure, he was going to have to choose Bush. Ah. So, so Bush used the October surprise to get himself into the vice presidency. And then he was the beneficiary of the Reagan assassination. And whole, the whole Jodie Foster thing was a red herring. I think so. And by the way, there was another shooter on the roof. It wasn't just Tinkle. How do we know that? Oh, we know that. Just study it. Uh, there are books on the subject. And I've talked to people who were there. Um, you know, you can imagine, I knew a lot of people in the White House who were physically there. There were a lot of people standing around uh, outside the uh, back door, you know. Of the uh, Hilton, the back, yeah. Yeah, where the, where the limousine was waiting. Reagan was actually shot with an exploding bullet, which went, when he raised his arm to wave to the, to the people. Right. Um, the bullet was shot through his raised armpit, his, I believe it was his right armpit, and barely missed his heart. It was an exploding bullet that didn't explode. Holy cow. It was a miracle. That, there were miracles that day. And then I'll end with this incredible experience. And that is, before we were sent home, that, that evening by Martin Anderson, before the event I told you with Ed Mason and Greg, um, I was sitting at my desk, which was uh, right outside Martin Anderson, Chief Domestic Policy Advisor's desk, second floor of the West Wing, and I was the last office uh, to the end of the West Wing, uh, after which, out of my window, there was a, uh, some grass and then a drive and then the old war building from World War II. It's now called the old executive office building. And as I looked out in the late afternoon, mid to late afternoon, suddenly a beautiful rainbow burst into the sky. 
And I happen to know that Reagan's Secret Service code name was Rawhide and Nancy Reagan's Secret Service code name was Rainbow. And so I immediately called down to the White House photographer's office because it was the perfect shot out of my window. Oh <laughs> and my, I, my. He was he was in the he was in the basement or the first floor and I was on the second floor. I mean he was at my desk in thirty seconds, it seemed. And he literally jumped up on my desk with his feet on all of my papers and threw up the sash of the window and took the most phenomenal Fantastic. photograph of the rainbow over the old executive office wow. building. We are at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, Barbara Honiger, Marvin D. Jones, and Georgia Lambert, and we've saved the best for last. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, fanfare of the common man. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, Sunday morning, here in the land of enchantment. One half hour to go. Um, I hope we've kind of filled in some interstitial glue for a lot of people who, like me, are devotees of the Republic, of the American unique experiment still ongoing, and, of course, the individual, the head of state who guides this experiment, which is now stretched, as we say, in terms of full terms from the Osirian beginning of George Washington exemplified by that monument, that spire, that obelisk sitting there in the center of Washington, D.C. Ending, not counting the current presidency, with Donald J. Trump, who, as I've said on this show countless times before over the last four years, every time there was an opportunity, Trump seemed to choose the wrong road. He did everything wrong. And I'm a little tired of the press attributing this to selfishness, to lack of strategic planning, to he's totally wrapped up in Trump, et cetera, et cetera. 
I unfortunately see a much larger plan, which as Barbara has detailed, I think began on that afternoon in terms of enactment with the near miracle assassination of Ronald Reagan. Because I think this plan to turn the United States of America into the Fourth Reich began on that afternoon. And I believe, and I've not said this before, but I believe that Donald J. Trump was selected and elected to carry out the fulfillment of that plan, not for the Nazis just on Earth, but for the breakaways upstairs in space. And that this explains why, instead of embracing the idea of ancient extraterrestrial structures built by ancient humans on the moon and all over the solar system, which would have guaranteed Donald Trump an immortal place in history and maybe even in the footsteps of Franklin Roosevelt, a third term, why he chose instead to try to steal an election, steal a country, and this is wound up now with him stealing heaven knows what high-level upper top secret secrets of the United States in his post-presidential years, a plot which even as we speak tonight is gradually but at an accelerating pace unfolding. We are, as all the commentators keep saying over and over again, in unprecedented times because frankly, I think the breakaways this Nazi faction that left the earth with the control of extraordinary physics, you know, at the end of Hitler's regime, I think they have tried to undermine the one place on earth which can stop a fascist plot to turn earth into a totalitarian society, and that is the free men and women of this fledgling republic, the United States, begun in the Assyrian tradition of the presidency of Washington. Okay, guys, you can all aim your guns at me now. Well, I'd like to jump in if I could, because I've, um, people should have it as just uh, a shared knowledge base. Um, if, if folks can go to my items again, um, if you go to numbers 3A and B, um, these are the two articles that were just from August 8th, a few days ago. Trump demanded his generals to be loyal like Hitler's. Um, I've chosen the article from the Washington Post of August 8th and from the um, the Israel, the Times of Israel, to see it from the Israeli Jewish perspective. It's extremely important. Um, people are finally waking up that this man is basically uh, thinks of himself as the Fuhrer as uh, Hitler's successor. Uh, number four, um, this is my PowerPoint that I've uh, had on this show before in my items. Well, hang on, hang uh, on, hang on, hang on. Wasn't it Ivana during their divorce that yes. actually swore an affidavit that Correct. Trump kept on his night table the collected words of Hitler? The collected speeches of Adolf Hitler, he studied them. Uh, it was in his, by his bedside. And that's in number four. I was just about so, to... So we have sworn testimony under penalty of perjury in a U.S. court of law that this is what Donald Trump spent years 
reading. And not only that, uh, in the same sworn uh, affidavit uh, for her divorce trial, um, she said that um, she named uh, one of the people who would come into his office, presumably at the time in Trump Tower, anyway, into his personal office, click their heels and put their hands up in the air and say, Kyle Hitler. Good grief. Okay, now, now this is... Now, hang on. One more data, on, point. On, one, one data point. One more data point. One more data point. Ivana just died under Correct. very mysterious Very mysterious circumstances. circumstances. I do not believe it was a natural death. I don't either. I don't either. Absolutely not. Are you kidding? She had blunt... blunt Force trauma. Which you don't she get from falling down the carpeted stairs. She knows too much. She knew too much. Exactly. Okay, now number four is probably the most important one. Number four and five. Um, number four is my PowerPoint. Um, just click on it, and you just need to read those PowerPoints. The information's in it. There are links within the PowerPoint. You'll have to type it yourself because they're not live links. Of course, they're in PowerPoint slides. But every single thing that we have just said about Ivana Trump's, what she said in her sworn uh, affidavit in their divorce trial, um, and by the way, the judge granted her divorce. I guess at the time you had to prove that you were being brutalized in some way. Um, but her divorce was granted from Trump uh, because of uh, the massive abuse by him. And um, so you just need to read this PowerPoint. This PowerPoint, in this PowerPoint, you learn that the very individuals who did the January 6th riot, the, the the you know the the insurrection the insurrectionist and in particular who did the charlottesville torch march which was consciously mimicking the torch march Mm -hmm. under hitler's window the Mm -hmm. night he became chancellor of germany okay and the whole nazi the whole nazi regime began in spain um officially um that you will you will learn that these people consciously refer to him as the long-awaited glorious leader, i.e., the Führer. Well, he couldn't have, he, he he couldn't come out as a normal president would do at that couple of news conferences and simply you know say these guys are wrong, they're the enemies of the country of the republic. He couldn't do it because he's one of them. He's their leader. Okay, number five, and then then we'll bring other people in. But number five is incredibly important. Uh, And there is a book that everyone needs to read. It's called Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of Nazi Racist Law. Uh, And these are excerpts from this article uh, in the New York Times. Um, And the name of the article is How the Swastika Became the Confederate Flag. Um, People need to understand that in the mind of these people who did the Charlottesville Torch March, um, he, he is their Fuhrer. He is their long-awaited glorious leader, not just in the United States, but as Bannon says, in the, their, their march was called Unite the Right, not just the right in the United States, but Bannon's goal, and he was the top advisor to, uh, to Trump. Which, of um, course, is why the Republicans now, the Trumpists, the Trump Party, the MAGA idiots, invited Viktor Orban to the uh, you know Texas Correct. convention of, of right-wing Republicans and venerated a guy who basically talked about we don't want any race mixing in Hungary. Exactly. I mean, these people are Nazis. There's no question about it. 
And it's not Victor Oban who is seen uh, by these people as their glorious no, no. leader. It is Trump. Yep. Okay. Um, I'm going to get mail. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get mail. <laughs> uh, Georgia, I want you to yeah. talk now about Washington's dream, because in the frame of where we have come from and where we are tonight and where we're going, this prescient dream, regardless of when it happened, is so interesting on this landscape, and I think people need to, to hear about it and, and kind of see the connections to what's happening right now. Was it a dream? It's called Washington's Vision. Yeah, let, let me uh, explain what I have for my items here. They're all downloadable uh, for your listeners. Uh, number one is titled America's Vision. This is an overview of the spiritual destiny of the United States. Number two, the focus of intent for our nation is a meditative visualization that anyone can use to invoke the truth as we move into this election time. Number three, the cradle of mental liberty is an article written by Manley Palmer Hall in 1952 about election and uh, false media and all kinds of very interesting things. Was this at the beginning of the McCarthy era? Uh, 52. So I'm trying to remember. I'm not sure the the, Yes, because demagogues were very prominent in the in the in the fifties. There was a John yeah. Birch Society, and then there was McCarthy, and there were some others. Our Father Coughlin, who was earlier during the end of the war or during the World War II and and Roosevelt. So yeah, we had demagogues on every side, Marvin. So the founders were well concerned with demagogues. Yeah, so, they... indeed they were. Rich, um, may I follow up? Uh, something? Yeah, and then we'll uh, and then we'll get back to you, George. I didn't mean to interrupt that way, but Marvin. Okay. Uh, it, this is just a brief follow up to what uh, Barbara was talking about, because this is something that galls me every single time I hear it. That most recent cabinet department, uh, the Department of, and I never say the word. I just refer to H land. Yeah, right. homeland security. Homeland security. Yep, yep. I always right. hated that right. term, right. homeland. It's so Nazi. Un-American. Right, right, right. Because growing well, up, blood and soil. The remember, time. remember the chant: mm-hmm. blood and soil, blood and soil. Exactly. Homeland. It, it fits with that fatherland crap. Yep. Right. Yep. And it is as un-American as can be because an H land refers to a place. That is for a particular group, a, a, a place for a particular ethnic or racial group. And there, that Ein Vogt, Ein Reich, Ein Führer, mm. it belongs to fatherland. But here, as it says on the uh, obverse side, the, the one that most people are used to seeing with the eagle, is E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. Diversity as opposed to exclusivity. <laughs> yeah, well, I certainly oh, the, the, the metaphysical the metaphysical version of that is the oneness of consciousness with the diversity of form. Mm-hmm. Or Gene Roddenberry's idic for Spock, 
out of infinite diversity, infinite combination. Exactly. Uh, let me let me just quickly finish listing my my links there. Um, you can for our audience, you can right click on the link and select save link as, and you can download these for yourself. Um, the Manny Palmer Hall article is well worth your time, as is the um, uh, the blurb on the spiritual destiny of the nation. Number five uh, has to do with the crown of America, which we discussed before. Number four is Washington's vision, which you mentioned, Richard. And there's a lot of controversy about this. Um, you can read the whole printout there in the link number four from the original article in the 1800s, uh, supposedly by an eyewitness with Washington at Valley Forge, where Washington went to the um, the forest to pray and received a, a vision uh, via an angel of uh, three major uh, difficulties that the United States would face, the new the new nation would face. The first is winning the American Revolution. The second is attributed to the Civil War, and the third is left rather vague, but. On the good side of things, uh, in Washington's dream, we do persevere through it. It doesn't take us down. No, it doesn't. No, it won't. Well, as I used to say, I'm seeing all kinds of green shoots. We have, we have gone through some kind of transformation in the last six weeks. We've turned a corner. A doorway has opened. Something has changed. You're but absolutely right. For one thing. This administration, which has been so underestimated by everybody, Republicans, Democrats, independents, the press most of all, and Biden has been basically the, the guy we love to kick around and, oh, he's too old and he's too frail and he can't walk up the stairs and he falls off bicycles and why doesn't he get rid of those stupid glasses and every conceivable idiocy. This administration in less than a year and a half has been more productive in terms of things for the people of the United States of America than any administration since Lyndon Johnson. And right. I might even argue going back to Roosevelt himself, because some of these changes in law now are such at a fundamental systemic foundational order that they are going to change the lives, not just of Americans, but everybody else on planet Earth. And like Henny Youngman, he's getting no respect. Why? Well, he's he's succeeding. I mean, I think isn't it tonight or tomorrow that he's signing the uh, the big bill for climate change and all of that. I mean, that's massive. Massive, massive. The upshot of of I think all of this is what each of us as individuals can do. We know that thought affects the torsion field. And so as we move into this election time, it's really important that we make choices. And that's why I included in my number two uh, a, a technique for, for doing that for anybody that wants it. Yeah, I want to remind people also that Biden, who I think is kind of, it's kind of like Jimmy Carter. He's just so boring, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what, what um, 
Donald Trump follows, there's a book uh, called Roger Stone's Laws of uh, uh, Life, War, and Politics, or something like that. Life, Love, War, and Politics. And one of them is, um, whatever you do, never be boring, you know? I mean, the one thing about Donald Trump is that everything he does is kind of spectacular, you know? I mean, it's really good showmanship. He's an incredible showman. Um, and Biden is so incredibly Casper Milktoast boring. You can't even see his eyes. He wears those ridiculous aviator dark glasses. Okay, however, however, I want to remind people that when he decided, and it was a major decision for him at his age, when he decided to run for the presidency, he explicitly stated in his most important address that it that he made his decision because of the Charlottesville torch march, that he realized that this was a, that the choice before us was for an America where, as we're saying here, uh, everyone is politically equal, respected, treated well, don't kill each other, et cetera, et cetera, or if we're going to have a tyranny. I mean, it's one or the other. At the end of at the end of the article on America's vision, the final paragraph is, "Whatever you choose to do, do it quickly. The world stands on the brink of a global revolution. We can consciously choose an enlightened course, ushering in a new age of planetary harmony and peace. The League of the Iroquois chose that course hundreds of years before America's founders lived this vision." America is destined to lay the foundation of world peace and global unity. We can encourage this process by remembering that we are not a people of a city or a state. We are not the people from the east or west coasts of America, both from the planet Earth. We are Earth people. We are brethren. Wow. Yes. Um, I have from time to time vigorous discussions with pro-Trump people. And I can't seem to get, you know, my mind around what do they see in this guy? What has he done for the country other than give, you know, billionaires an extraordinary tax uh, break uh, in the, I think it was the second year of his term. What has he done except tear down at every opportunity the fundamental fabric of the republic? It's like he was that espionage agent that the founders were very fearful of in crafting a government where foreign influence, foreign entanglements, to quote Washington, foreign intrusion into this experiment was at every level countermanded by some check or balance. Uh, Marvin, am 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 I right or wrong in that in terms of that was almost their unique obsession to keep this experiment in and of itself, so it could flower and grow and not be killed in the crib. Right. And that is also the reason for the emoluments clause. Oh, talk about that, because that's been one area that Trump has gotten away with almost murder. Yes, indeed. Uh, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. And no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, 
without the consent of the Congress, except any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. And what happened just down the street in the old post office, which was converted by Trump into the uh, Trump Hotel there in Washington? A steady stream of foreign potentates and emissaries and ambassadors mm-hmm. and billionaires and mm-hmm. all kinds of other influence peddlers paid him thousands and thousands you know, per week to stay at the Trump Hotel and be wined and dined before they met with the president of the United States. I mean, from beginning mm-hmm. to end, it's almost like the Donald Trump presidency was the epitome of everything the founders were terrified could happen. And yet a third of the elect is looking at all this, including the latest dust up on, you know, nuclear secrets and national security and top secret files. And no one in that crowd is saying enough is enough is enough. In fact, a good portion of the Republican Party basically attacked the FBI for trying to figure out why Donald Trump squirreled away 33 boxes of top secret documents. Right. And let's let's yeah. remember that we now know from what's been uh released um you know of the of the documents um the, the uh, warrant, the search warrant. Uh they haven't released the affidavit, which is the critical part that says, you know, why they knew or believed that uh there were classified documents there that shouldn't have been there. Um, but we we know enough now to know that um, uh, one of the uh, reasons that was given uh, in the affidavit was the concern uh, that Trump was violating the Espionage Act. And I have been certain of that from day one that he was in the White House. Yes. There were conversations about a year ago, and I think Lawrence O'Donnell was spearheading them. That Trump in the next year or two owes something like 400 million to Deutsche Bank or the various banks uh, overseas, not domestic, but overseas that have bankrolled him even when his credit, you know, got used up domestically. And they were casting around for, well, what could he do after he was president? This is obviously before the whole thing about the insurrection and the plot to not leave office and all that. What could he do to raise money? of that magnitude and there were you know discussants converse you know uh, the chattering class who said well he could basically sell out the back door america's secrets and good god it looks like that's exactly what he has been planning if he yes, hasn't Richard, done so already he's actually done is to do the big uh, you know the election was stolen trip which is a big con and a scam do you realize that the last the article I read, he'd, re- he'd raised something like $250 million. $250 million from the scam that he was not diselected in Correct. the election. That's, that's getting pretty close to $400 million. See, what I don't understand, and this is where maybe some of the audience can help in terms of letters, and we'll pick this up you know, in future shows. In an era of digital media, in an era of the cloud, in an era where you can make things go away and put them in 15 million different places and no law enforcement agency could ever track down all the holes in the dike and fill them, 
why were there 33 boxes of documents sitting in the basement at Mar-a-Lago for the FBI to go and get? And why did the FBI also go into Melania Trump's personal areas? Well, if you're hiding stuff, I mean, if, if, if you read the warrant, they basically had carte blanche to look in any damn room of the, well, that's true. Of the 58 bedrooms a, and the 30. If I were a foreign power, Richard, I would have my little um, red sparrow or whatever as the wife of the president of the United States. Well, that raises something that we don't have time to get into. Hey, guys, uh, we only got three minutes, so let me wrap this up. If you look at my item number seven, Tetrahedral 7, when President Joseph Robinette Biden became president a year and a half ago, one of the first things he did was to ask NASA in a personal phone call to send him a moon rock, which arrived in the Oval Office and is sitting on a desk to the left-hand side of the, of the Resolute desk on that bookshelf that uh, uh, Obama had a whole bunch of ancient inventions and stuff like that. If you look carefully at number seven, that is not a rock. That is a octahedron, incredible symmetry that has been lying on the lunar surface till it was collected by one of the Apollo missions. I think it was Apollo 17 after several billion years, because you can see that the bottom, which was lying face down, was protected in the dust. The top is pitted and bombarded by micrometeorites in the airless environment of the moon, so it's eroded and it only has a general form. This, by the way, is the same of all the ancient spacecraft that NASA has covertly visited under the guise that they're simply going to various asteroids. So I want to read before we get to the bottom here, and I don't think I'm going to have time. So I guess until next week, all I can say is, uh, you know, we're going to have to leave it there. My guests this morning have been uh, Georgia Lambert and Marvin D. Jones and um, Barbara Honiger. And until tomorrow, this is the other side of midnight, signing off. Do not touch that dial for tomorrow night because we have another surprise. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.